Hello everybody, I am Lucia Matuonto and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin. Hello and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast. Today we are heading to California to talk to Joe Lurie. Joe is an executive director emeritus at the University of California, Beckley's International Housing, an intercultural trainer, coach, and author. His latest book, Perception and Deception, A Mind-Opening Journey Across Cultures, is out now. So, Joe, welcome to the RV. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you, Lucia. It's my pleasure as well. I'm very happy to have you here today, Joe. And you are originally from New York City. Correct. And you have been living yeah. in California since 1988. What took you to California? <laughs> well, I was living in New York City, and I met what was to become my future wife, who basically didn't like New York. She thought because she likes the sun. And she told me uh, when things got serious that if I wanted to marry her, I would at least have to try to apply for a job in California. Mm -hmm. And so to make a long story short, we came to California and we drove up the coast and we stopped at every intercultural international exchange center uh, from San Diego all the way up to Berkeley. And the final stop was in Berkeley. And um uh, Ultimately, I, I was able to, I was honored to receive the position of executive director at that time in 1988. And uh, that's how I got to California. I wasn't even thinking of it. Well, great story. So did you regret your decision or are you happy about leaving there? Oh, I think it was one of the, the best decisions I've ever made. Uh, not only because um, it was wonderful to experience a new environment, to discover a new state, with all of its diversity, but I was blessed and privileged to have been chosen to serve in a magnificent institution with wonderful values, a wonderful mission. And uh, as you may know, uh, I lived in many countries and here was an opportunity to live in my own country with many people from all over the world. Just to give you a little sample, the International House at UC Berkeley is one of the largest international living program centers in the world. Now, if you can imagine this, Lucia, about 580 students from 75 to 80, 85 countries, depending on the year, living together, doing activities together, learning together. This is how people come to understand each other. It's not through books. It's through interactions that are prolonged, not anecdotal. So the fact that I had that opportunity to work there, to serve in a leadership position and meet these students from all over the world, including the United States, from 25 states in the United States, so that the students from overseas could learn about many kinds of Americans and many kinds of Americans could learn about this multiplicity of cultures throughout the world it was a blessing. It is a blessing. I was going to tell it. And actually, what is the mission of the International House at UC Berkeley? 
the mission is basically to foster intercultural understanding uh, towards a more peaceful world, to develop skills for leadership uh, across cultures. And the notion is that the best way to do this is by living together, discovering people face-to-face, -face, living, experiencing a multitude of things together. And my experience over about 20 years was that, yes, in the vast majority of cases, people were amazed at what they didn't know and the discoveries that came open to them that in many cases lasted a lifetime. As a former Peace Corps volunteer in Kenya, in what ways did you experience led to a realization of your own lack of cultural knowledge and preconceived notions? Yeah, so I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Kenya in the late 60s for three years. And when I first got there, I just began to realize how much I didn't understand. What I, what I was looking at was based on the limitations of my own experience. So, for example, as you may know, in many parts of the world, men hold hands, and it doesn't have to do with homosexuality. Yeah. And so I learned that holding hands, per se, can have many different meanings across cultures. So the first time a Kenyan held my hand and had a conversation with me for 20 minutes, I was getting a little nervous because I wasn't clear as to whether he was approaching me in a sexual way. Mm -hmm. Eventually, I learned men hold hands not only throughout Africa, commonly, without any suggestion of homosexuality, but it's common in the Middle East. It's common in parts of Asia. And I must tell you, uh, Lucia, when I came back to the United States three years later, I got so used to holding men's hands and adapting to another culture that when I came back to the United States, I didn't know what to do with my hand. And then I told this to a Nigerian friend of mine where it's also common for men to hold hands. Mm -hmm. And he, he laughed and he said, you know, when I first came to San Francisco, I went to the Castro, which is the gay neighborhood in the Bay Area. And he was holding hands with a Nigerian friend of his and he couldn't understand why some of the people in the, in the Castro were actually kind of um, trying to engage with them in a flirtatious way. So he then be, had his own awareness that holding hands with another man could mean something completely different. And then I'll give you uh, one other example. There were so many, but just another example. Uh, all of the students that I was teaching, uh, as my role was in the Peace Corps, were on a university track, but they had never been to Nairobi. So I brought them to the University of Nairobi so they would get a taste of what lay in front of them. And one of my students met a professor who was in her 70s, and he said to her, nice to meet you, grandma. Mm -hmm. Now, Lucia, in, in many Western countries, if you call a stranger who is an elderly person, grandma, it's an insult. You know, yes. I don't know you, you're kind. And also in the United States, you know, age isn't as respected as it is in most other countries. And so she was horrified. But what did I learn then? That grandma is a term of respect, even when a stranger calls someone who is elderly, grandma, grandpa, etc. So this was the beginning of my understanding. My God, what I'm looking at, I don't really understand. It's like people who come here from other countries and they say, when you look at me, do you really see me? For example, here in Spain, they call us auntie or uncle. People call us like tia, tio, more young people. And I said, oh, do I look like I'm the uh, auntie? I'm not that old. But it's the way they 
Kreuzwater. From country to country, all of these things, everything from gestures to tone of voice to attitudes about what is polite, what is not polite, how you treat the elderly, how you communicate, every single one of these things can have a completely different meaning when you cross cultures. And even within your own country. So you, you've been to Spain, you've spent a lot of time in Spain, you know there are many different cultures within Spain, and they don't always understand what certain ways of communicating may signify. Yeah. And so you published the book Perception and Deception, A Mind-Opening Journey Across Cultures. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? Yeah. So, you know, after I completed my service um, as executive director at International House, I wanted to continue my journey and and learn from other cultures, as well as teaching people who hadn't had the benefit of my experience about how you can learn about uh, what you're looking at when it's unfamiliar. And so I began to work with uh, refugees who were coming to the United States and immigrants. And um, I learned that in many different countries, there's a different way of looking for a job. How you do a resume, how you interview, how you network, all of those things are different. So as I began to even learn more about, particularly in this age of unprecedented immigration, about people from so many different countries who were immigrating, whether to the United States or to other countries, I realized, you know, maybe it would be of some service to write a book about the different ways in which people misunderstand each other in work, in travel, um, in, in all kinds of situations. So for example, in the book, the chapters, for example, are the first chapter is about all the things I didn't understand in, in my experiences in the many countries of Africa. The second chapter is about what happens when people from 80 countries live together. What happens when they encounter each other and they think they're doing things that may be insulting, but which in fact are not insulting. So there's a chapter on that. Mm -hmm. There's a chapter on how do people from other countries perceive many U.S. Americans. For example, a common thing, Lucia, is for people to say, why are you Americans smiling all the time? I don't know you. Yeah. I mean, I know. smiles mean <laughs> smiles yeah. mean different things across cultures, but sometimes it's appropriate in certain situations to smile at a strangers. But in many countries, who are you? Why are you smiling at me? It yeah. can be easily misinterpreted. Yeah, I experienced these because I was in Germany and I was smiling for everybody, but they were like serious. Why is this woman smiling to me? She, she doesn't know me. Then, you know, you have to get adapted. For example, in Brazil, if you introduce someone to me, I'm going to hug this person, not in exactly. Germany. In Germany, you just uh, extend your hand. So, <laughs> and that's right. But touch, body, body language, all of these things are very different. And we would often find that in many Latin American countries, there is a, a, a much more emphasis on tactile touching. Whereas in Asian countries, pe people don't, particularly with people they don't know, there's not touching in the same way. So at International House, sometimes I would see a Brazilian hug a Japanese person, a Japanese person you know, would stand back like this because they weren't used to this. They, were, they weren't angry. They just misunderstood. So speaking of Brazil, another chapter is all about what are some of the implications when people do business across cultures? So you, you mentioned Brazil. I was called in with a, a Brazilian colleague to help untangle a dispute between an American company and a Brazilian company about a contract. 
And one of the main problems that they didn't understand about each other is differences, concepts of time. So, you know, from mm. many parts of the United States, when you say eight o'clock next week, that's literally what it means. Yes. In Brazil, if you say, you know, I'll, I'll get it to you. Yes, I'll get it to you when you're asking. It doesn't next week may mean in th three or four weeks. But here was the real challenge. In Brazil, they had a contract that referenced the word deadline. I don't know if you know this, uh, Lucia, but in most languages in the world, there is no word for deadline. So the Brazilians were not respecting what the Americans thought was to be taken literally a deadline. <laughs> I asked the Brazilian, how do you interpret the word deadline? You know what she said to me? Uh-huh. Hope. Hope. <laughs> Hope. So at least, you know, in this that part of the meeting, when we were trying to get people to understand each other, what do they really mean? You know, what words mean different things in different yeah. cultures? Yeah, and I understand you completely, this concept of time in Brazil, because, for example, sometimes I used to tell my friends, we are going to meet at the beach. We know that we are going to meet at the beach. We don't, we don't really care about the time because we know we'll be there so there is nothing like at nine o'clock i will meet you there no nobody's going to be there at nine o'clock <laughs> there you go that's right and i many of my mexican friends have had to explain to some of the u.s americans who are visiting in mexico if you're invited to a mexican family's house and you ask them what time should i come to dinner and the mexican you know generally speaking will say well come eight eight thirty uh, and so the U.S. American generally respects that comes 8, 8.30. And uh, sometimes they haven't even started cooking yet. So the, the expectation is, you know, that 8.30 might mean 9.30 or 10. Yeah. It's a completely different concept. It's so difficult to grasp immediately. But when you understand it, it stops you from being angry and frustrated right away. I love the idea of this book. And so I am going to get your book tomorrow. No, not <laughs> Well, the other thing that I did in the book that I, I so it would be helpful, particularly in the second edition, the one that came out most recently, was at the end of each chapter, there are questions and exercises that are meant to help people to reflect on what they've read and what it's meant and how they can begin to learn about this from their own perspective, right? So, you know, if I were to give some advice, one of the pieces of advice I would give when people come from other countries, wherever you're from, whether you're from Germany or China, or the United States or Canada, when somebody comes from another country, one of the best ways to begin to understand them is to ask them, what have you seen in this country that you would never see in your own country? That seems strange, bizarre, maybe even offensive. This is a very gentle way of getting to understand another person's perspective without kind of making it a polarizing, you're right, I'm wrong, this is crazy, this is not crazy. Yeah. And just to give you a little example of that, I was doing some coaching for some Middle Eastern and North African women who were um, entrepreneurs and uh, tech, tech people uh, doing internships in Silicon Valley in California. So I asked them as part of this discovery of the new environment they were living in to go out, observe everything they could uh, and tell me what they saw that they'd never seen in their own countries. They said, they all came back and they said, we were so struck by these WAG hotels, W-A-G hotels. Now, some of your listeners may be shocked, but WAG hotels are hotels for dogs. 
Now, many of these women came from countries where while dogs may be appreciated, they are considered dirty and they don't bring them into the home. So for them, with that reality, to come and see, my goodness, there's a hotel for dogs that has different prices for the type of room they have, the type of food uh, food options they're going to take, the kind of grooming they're going to get. I mean, this seems, from their point of view, to be totally insane. Actually, Lucia, from my point of view, it seems a little insane, too. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there are so many things that sometimes we don't understand. But I have an important question for you, Joe. Do you think that globalization is bringing us closer together? I think that there's no one-size-fits-all answer to that. The paradox is that in many ways, globalization, which is happening very quickly, you can even see differences in generations are, are, are speeding up. So, for example, people, there's always been an, a difference in generations, but now it seems to be happening every four or five years, every new smartphone, every new technique, every new technology is, is I think, uh, keeping people apart. So because globalization is bringing people together so quickly and without context, that for me, it is fueling misunderstanding. On the other hand, You know, in the United States, certainly our country has been enriched by people who come from other countries. You can see fusion of various types of foods, whether Asian foods and Western foods or uh, Latin foods and Western foods. You see that in restaurants. So there is something of a coming together on some levels. But the premise of my book is this: these changes fueled by technology and to a large extent by migration, unpre unprecedented, the amount of migration that's going on in the world now. I think is causing people to come together without any context. And the absence of context causes people to be fearful, to misunderstand what something means. So yes, globalization is bringing us together quickly, but not all, but frequently not in a productive way because it doesn't give us the time to get to know each other and to understand each other's realities. Yeah, very well explained. And in what ways do cultural stereotypes and mis misperceptions contributes to intolerance and even violence? And how can we overcome them, Joe? You know, I think all of us, even those of us who are relatively well-educated, well-traveled, all of us have some kind of bias because our experiences are limited. So let's say you and I have had a bad experience with a particular individual from a country. I'll give you an example from International House, okay? There was a Filipina Christian who was a student at International House working in the program office with a Pakistani Muslim. She didn't want to talk to him. Why? Because perhaps she had a bad experience with a Filipino, a Filipino Muslim in the Philippines. She wouldn't even talk to him. She wouldn't open the door. She wouldn't address him, even though they were working in the same office, until she got sick. And when you get sick at International House, somebody brings you food from the dining room. Yeah. Who brought her food from the dining room? Yeah. This Pakistani Muslim. That moment of humanization, that moment of kindness permitted them to forge a bond and to begin talking to each other. This was 25 years ago, Lucia. They are best friends today. Wow. So when, when you say, you know, how can we get beyond some of these stereotypes? Let's say you have a bad experience with X ethnicity. You can't basically say, well, all of them are like that. 
That is crazy. Yeah. There's all kinds of Spaniards, all kinds of Brazilians, all kinds of white people, all kinds of black people. There's a wonderful proverb from Mark Twain who says, when you when the cat sat on a hot stove, it never sat on a cold stove again. Okay. That you could be so seared by a bad experience with an individual from a particular background. You could be so seared with that uh, that you would not, it would close off people from that part of the world or that ethnicity forever. The beauty of a place like International House is that you have a chance to meet a whole variety of people from the same ethnicity and to begin to see, gee, there's many kinds of people within every group. And there's a, a wonderful Russian author, Solzhenitsyn, who said, the line between good and evil does not pass between nations, ethnicities, and religions. It passes right through the human heart. So in a nutshell, if you want to be able to get beyond polarization, if you want to get beyond stereotyping people based on limited experiences, you have to spend time with people who are different from you. And I don't mean just anecdotally occasionally. You have to spend time and discover their common humanity. And unfortunately, we're living in a time now where there's more segregation than it has ever been in many ways in certain among certain groups. And people are afraid of interacting with each other because of We'd have to have about 10 more shows on this, Lucia. <laughs> I think you'll have to come this. back. So I think you will have to come back. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, the bottom line is there is a way of addressing it, but it has to be done massively. Like people have to spend time with each other, whether at international houses or uh, common work projects or common service projects where you're discovering people by pursuing a common purpose. Yes, totally. And you know, Joe, I had the most wonderful experience at the airport the other day. A couple approached me and asked if I could help their friend who didn't speak English find her way to the gate since she was taking the same flight as us. I tried my best to communicate with her using hand gestures, but unfortunately, it wasn't enough. And she looked so afraid. So instead of giving up, my daughter and I decided to spend some time with her and play Uno. I don't know if you know these. these is, they are cards. Uno. We started playing cards. And it's oh, a very, cards, right. Yeah, it was very easy game. So despite the language barrier, we quickly found ourselves laughing and enjoying each other's company. And it was such a beautiful moment. I think laughter is the universal language. And if we have empathy, like even though we couldn't understand each other, I couldn't understand what she was telling us. We were still able to share joy and laughter. It was just a small moment, but I know it made a big impact of on all of us. So empathy, I think, is the is the word. And so what can we learn about different cultural practices and beliefs, such as the significance of hand gestures, eye contact, and food choices, in order to foster better communication and understanding. Can you give us some examples? So gestures, you know, there are certain gestures that are commonly um, 
accepted around the world. This gesture, common in many parts of the world as thumbs okay. up, right? Mm -hmm. Thumbs up, good. This is vulgar in many countries, in parts of West Africa, Iraq, Iran, Australia. This is this is a bad gesture. It's mm -hmm. very insulting. So again, when you're traveling and you want you see things that that strike you as odd, maybe even offensive, the best way to do this is to kind of step back and ask yourself, what else could this mean? Is there a meaning that I have never encountered before that could explain why perhaps I find this insulting? Um, the left hand, as you well know, in many countries, it's impolite to give somebody something with your left hand. Yeah. And in other countries, it's OK. You know, it's, it's OK to do. Um, you know, the book goes into explanations as to why that is the case. But you can't automatically assume that if I give you something with your my left hand, which I did once when I actually was spending time in, in another African country, Ghana, the chief got very angry with me. He thought it was an insult. I was presenting a gift to him with my left hand. I didn't know that that was an insult at the time, using the left hand, as it is in many cultures. Yeah. Um, so you ask about gestures, you ask about food, you ask about, you you name the topic and the chances are I can give you an example of how there are multiple meanings about that particular, whether it's gestures, food, what was the other item you mentioned, Lucia? Eye contact. Oh, eye contact, eye contact. So in many, in the United States and in some other cultures, when you look somebody in the eye, that is a sign of engagement. I'm listening to you, I'm respecting you. In many countries, Averting the eyes, lowering the eyes, is a sign of showing respect to an elder, uh, to a person in authority. And this is, I saw this in many places in, in, during my days in Africa, where uh, Americans, many U.S. Americans and Westerners in general, who were younger than a, let's say, an African elder, would look at them straight in the eye, and the elder would be offended. Right. Or the reverse, um, a European would think many Europeans, I noticed, would think that young Africans who averted their eyes to an elder were being untruthful, devious, where the opposite was true. They were showing respect. So, again, what else could this mean? Uh, let's say a European in their 60s, 70s is encountering an African student, many African students who lower their eyes, yes. they don't realize that the student is showing respect as respect. opposed to being dishonest. They, their interpretation, the Europeans' interpretation was, oh, they're being dishonest. They're not engaging with me. They're not being candid. We should learn about their customs or their culture before visiting their places. I know that things sometimes can be so misunderstood. Like, for example, indicating that someone is crazy involves tapping the index finger on the temple, whereas in Germany, people move their hand with an open palm in front of their face. And I said, why are they doing this? I didn't understand why. And then I asked people and they said, no, he's just saying that someone is crazy. And I was thinking that he was crazy because he was tapping his finger in his head. Exactly, exactly. And you know, in the United States, this is a common way of indicating you're crazy, right? For some, yeah. many people. Yeah. But 
in Japan, it's my understanding, hopefully one of your Japanese listeners and viewers will correct me if I'm wrong, I believe to show you're crazy in Japan is you take the finger and move in the opposite direction. Funny. In how many countries did you live, Joe? Well, actually, um, living, you know, I lived in, in uh, various countries in Africa for almost four years. I lived in France for three years. I lived in Canada for two years. And then uh, my wife and I have had the great privilege of traveling to many countries for extended stays, you know, a month, two months here and there, to about 80 different countries. So each time that we embarked on a new adventure in a new country, we were aware of the fact that what we were going to encounter initially might be puzzling. We might even misinterpret it. We, it might make us angry. But because of our experiences in so many other countries, we were prepared to, let's find out. Let's find out what this really means. So if somebody did a gesture that looked offensive to us, we might at some point in the conversation, once we got to know somebody, we might say, what does that gesture mean here? And then it would become into, uh, lead to a very interesting conversation about gestures across cultures. Yeah. <clears throat> Before being offended, we should try to understand first. And so would you like to leave a message to our listeners today? I would like to leave a message because I, I like to think of myself as, you know, communicating these ideas through stories. So here's, the, here's a brief story that I think encapsulates the purpose and the various themes and examples I give in the book. And it's a true story. Mm -hmm. The story is about my return to the United States after having lived in Kenya for three years. And I was walking uh, in a park with a colleague. And she was telling me about her three-year-old daughter, who in that park, a week or two earlier, looked up in the sky and saw a bird. And the three-year-old daughter asked her mother, Mommy, where is that bird's cage? Mommy, where is that bird's cage? Uh -huh. Now, that little girl asked that question because it was the first time in her life she'd seen a bird flying. Because in her apartment at home, there was a bird in a cage, a canary in a cage. Mm -hmm. So she associated all birds with a cage until she got out of the cage and could see other realities. So that is the purpose of my book, to help people get out of their cages. And quite frankly, uh, Lucia, all of us are in a cage. Some of our cages are bigger than others. Mm -hmm. But every one of us is limited by our experiences. And those experiences, ipso facto, are limiting. So we just want to broaden them as much as possible so that we can realize, yes, there are birds that can fly. Yes, we just know what we used to see around us. I think that engaging dialogue and exposing yourself, even diverse media, consume media from a variety of sources, including those that represent different cultures and perspectives. And where can we find you, Joe? And of course, your book. So the book is on Amazon, Perception and Deception, A Mind-Opening Journey Across Cultures by Joe Lurie. And... Um, it's referenced on my website, which I think I, I sent to you, perceptionanddeception.com. 
And on my website, if somebody wants to give me some suggestions, teach me something, be in contact with me, my they can contact me through my website. There's my LinkedIn profile and other ways to contact me. So yes, I, I love to continue the conversation. And what I welcome more than anything else is for people to correct me if I'm wrong and teach me about things I've never experienced or ever dreamt about. In fact, hopefully when you one day come and visit California, you will teach me about many of the discoveries you made in your travels. Wonderful. Also, I want to tell our listeners that your article will be featured in our magazine in March, the Relatable Voice magazine. So they will be able also to learn a little bit more about you, to see you, also all your socials. And of course, your book cover will be there. And it's such a pleasure to have you in the magazine. No, I just, and thank you for, for your interest and for welcoming me to your podcast. And I hope one day that you and I will get a chance to meet face to face. Yes. And I'll teach you more about Spain and about Brazil yes. and maybe about Italy. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. Obrigado. De nada. De nada. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening and remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time.